Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Addison, author of Pioneering Movements, and you're listening to The Engaging Missions Show. Welcome to The Engaging Mission Show with Brian Ensminger. We are bringing missions home. Each week, we hear from missionaries, ministry leaders, disciple makers, and church planters as they share about God's work in their lives and ministries. Like us, they are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show. I'm your host, Brian Ensminger, and we have a really special guest this week. I'm actually sitting with her in person. She's in the U.S. on furlough, and we're in what I'm going to call Studio KT, or Kitchen Table. She's a single lady, and she's a missionary to a majority Muslim nation. Before that, she did a number of interesting things, like apparently driving a bus for Out of Eden. And as you might expect, her life can be dangerous at at times, but I'm told that she's able to follow Christ's lead wherever that may be. Now, before we do... Before we go any further, I do want to mention that we're taking some precautions for security reasons. So we're going to be using a pen name. We're going to go by Miriam Paul. And we're also going to avoid using some specific terms, maybe the names of uh, places. And then also we're going to be um, adjusting Miriam's voice just a little bit. And that's just for security reasons. So with all that, Miriam, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So as you know, before we got into this interview, we sent out a survey to some of the people that are connected with you. And they had some feedback. And during the first section of the interview, I want to focus specifically on getting to know you, who you are, that kind of thing. And one of the people who chimed in and made a suggestion said that we might want to focus first on the story of your testimony, the you know, from God's call into what you're doing right now. So can you just take it away from there? Sure. I mean, I was 15 years old when I felt called to missions, and I it was a very strong call, and I knew that I would end up in the mission field. Um, I was in Latin America when I was in my teens and early 20s. Um, I did a few things there, um, some Bible school and some other ministry things. I thought I would be in Latin America for the rest of my life. And the Lord brought me back to the U.S. and um, just took me on a long journey of training and preparation that I didn't realize at the time, um, doing different kinds of ministries, lay ministries. Um, But I did get my credentials um, and... Um, continued to serve in my local church. And I was working at a hospital in a large city. Okay. And um, I was a Spanish interpreter using my Spanish skills. <laughs> so um, I worked with a lot of immigrants. And the day that 9-11 happened, uh, I think everybody remembers that. Oh, yeah. Um, I was working, um, going in and out of doctors' offices, exam rooms and such, helping to interpret. But every time I would step out, you know, I would go to the 
look at the TV in the waiting room and um, see what everything, what's happening. And the moment I, was, I stepped out into a large waiting room when, at the moment that the towers fell. And everybody remembers that sickening feeling, right? It's yeah. just so crazy. And as I um, sat there trying to process what was happening, I began to hear snickers and laughing in the room, in the waiting room. And in this waiting room were refugees, um, immigrants, people from many countries and many cultures. And uh, it, it unnerved me. And it opened my eyes, actually. Um, after 9-11, I think, you know, before that, I've never thought much about Muslim people. But after that, and especially that incident, my eyes were opened. And now I started observing them in this hospital, coming and going. As um, And then after 9-11, as, and as war, the war started, we started seeing a larger influx of immigrants and refugees from these areas. And my heart started going out to these women and seeing them and whether they were a hijab or a burqa or whatever, um, my heart just started loving them. I eventually met some um, former workers who, well, they were workers that had formerly lived in this particular country. And I heard this woman tell the story of the honor killings that happen in this country. Okay, um, A lot of conservative Muslim countries have a lot of honor killings. And somebody she knew, um, her daughter had actually um, set herself on fire because she had been violated. And to save the family honor, she set herself on fire. Hmm. Um, that was they, they call that kitchen fires in this country um, because um, a lot of times, whether the family does it to them or they do it to themselves, they'll um, have an accidental kitchen fire, uh-huh. sort of, you know, they douse them in but really they doused them in gasoline or oil and set them on fire. Um, When I heard this story and others like it, it broke my heart. And um, I just started to see more of the need. And I felt a strong pull to that country and to these women. And um, I met, I sat down actually with that same woman, the the worker who told that story. And um, I just said, you know, I just feel like there should be a way to help these girls. Is there anything that we can do? And she said, you know, Miriam, I hear your heart. I hear what you're saying, um, but that's not what we do. And I said, well, can I just go and visit? And she said, absolutely. So within a few months, actually, I had my plane ticket. I had a visa and I was preparing in a couple of weeks to leave for this country. And I was getting ready for work one morning and I was doing my hair in my bathroom. And the Holy Spirit just came and overcame me in my bathroom. And I felt his presence so strong and I began to cry. And I saw like in the spirit in my heart, I saw this vision of a young woman with long black hair and a veil in her head engulfed in flames. Hmm. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly, and he said, I'm not calling you to this land to rescue girls from kitchen fires. I'm sending you there to rescue them from the eternal fire. And I just, you know, um, it was a red letter moment for me, and I just began to cry, and I said, Lord, if you will open the door and you will make the way because there were many mountains in front of me. I was battling an illness and I had a lot of debts and a lot of things that would keep me from going. But I said, if you remove those, Lord, I'll go and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Uh, I went on my trip. I fell in love with the people and the the nation and I knew this is where I need to be. I came back and I submitted my applications for full appointment. And um, miraculously, um, the Lord gave me a scripture, mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Hmm. And those mountains that were 
hindering me from getting there, the Lord did melt them just to hit the nick of time. And um, <laughs> that's how I found myself in this nation. Wow. You know, you, you talked a little bit about the, the kitchen fires. Mm-hmm. That's something that in, in the U.S. we don't typically hear of. It seems like maybe we have the ability to be a little myopic or a little bit insulated from the reality of the world. Do you have suggestions for how people might find out a little bit more about the world? Well, one thing is to look at the news that's not just our local media. Um, If you go on the internet and you look at some of the other international news, you'll see things um, that you would never see otherwise. And you'll see things also from a different perspective than what our media likes to present to us. Um, But there are other websites with news such as Voice of the Martyrs Mm -hmm. or um, the Christian Post. and others like that, where they share a lot of the stories of what's happening in these countries, uh, stories that never, you know, make our headlines, but things that are just create great injustices or um, suffering or persecution um, that's happening all the time that we don't get to see. Is it hard for you sometimes to deal with knowing that and knowing that there's also a loving God? Is it sometimes difficult to reconcile how all of that fits together? Um. Wow, that's a, an interesting question. I don't. I think I. I don't. I used to listen to Ravi Zacharias a lot, mm-hmm. so I think that helps. But um, you know, God is love, and God is perfect, and He loves His people. He loves all people, but we are sinners, and all humans are sinners in need of a savior, and we are fallen, and we are. Um, messed up. And because of that, people make poor decisions. They do cruel things to others who are innocent. Um, They they victimize because of their sin. And a lot of us suffer because of the sin of other people. But I don't see how God God is not to blame for that. He gives us a free will. Um, But, you know, even God suffered uh, yeah. Jesus suffered um, at the hands of others and for um, for other people. And this is just one of those things I think we have to learn to accept by faith that, you know. Yeah. In, in a creative access area of the world, sometimes I would suspect that things can get a little bit scary. Do you ever battle fear? You know... Thank God. I I have not really had to deal with fear so much. Honestly, one of the keys that I I used, one of the tools, uh, before I left for this country, uh, a godly woman, she gave me a CD. Okay. And it's called No Fear. It's put out by Ambrose Ministries, I think, um, Tom Davis. And it's a whole CD of just... It has some worship songs on it, but it's scripture hmm. that he has taken throughout the whole Bible, from the whole Bible, and he's just kind of placed them together very poetically, mm-hmm. and it's with music. It's so beautiful, and it's so powerful, and just getting those scriptures, I would listen to that every day, <laughs> every day, and even when I first arrived there, I would listen to it every night before I went to sleep. Um, getting that scripture in my heart and in my soul, and just really understanding that you know, as big and scary as Al-Qaeda is, or as, you know, whatever, right. my God is bigger. And it's a matter of trusting in Him, but He has me in His hand, and there's no safer place to be than the center of His will. And whether that be here in America, or whether it be over there, in, you know, um, it's a gift, I think, that God has given me. 
um, a grace perhaps yeah. to do what I'm doing. But I've, when you see other workers in these areas, in these countries, once fear sets in and takes hold, mm-hmm. um, it's really hard for them to continue in their work. It's, it's a tool of Satan, but we have to be convinced that perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah. And if I know that God loves me, he has my best interest at hand. And also when he gives us love for the people that were there to minister to you, um, you're not so afraid of those that you love. Yeah. You can have a very strong reverence. <laughs> um, and you got to know your boundaries and use wisdom. But if you love them, you won't fear them in that aspect. So you've mentioned different scriptures a couple of times now. Is there a meaningful scripture or maybe a quote or something that kind of serves as a foundation for how you approach life and ministry? Oh, goodness. You know, I always go back to Romans uh, where Paul said that, you know, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on someone they've never heard of? And how will they hear if somebody doesn't tell them? And how is someone going to tell them unless they're sent? Um, and how... And then he goes on and says, faith comes by hearing. And, you know, we can look at people. I know people in our country, they're afraid of Muslims. They're mm-hmm. afraid of what's happening. Um, and to an unhealthy part, part, there's a lot of hate um, or fear of the unknown. But how can we judge them or despise them when they live in the only thing that they've ever known? And if we have the truth that they've never had access to, but we have it, how can we judge them when we're not willing to offer them the truth and at least share that with them? Um, it's a strong conviction I have. And um, I think that that's just an important thing to, to think about. That, you know, at least give them a choice. Give them a choice to reject him or serve him. But give them that choice because we've had it and they deserve that chance as well. Yeah. So we've we've talked a little bit about kind of your, God's call in your life. We've talked a little bit about a scripture. What I'm wondering now is if we can touch on maybe a challenge, a frustration, a failure, something in your life where you had one of those human moments where it didn't look like somebody's highlight reel. It looked maybe a little bit more like a blooper reel. And not only what the challenge was, but also how God saw you through that time. Well, you know, I knew before I went to this country that it was going to be difficult. Um, okay. I knew it would be difficult, but I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what that would look like. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, you go to a country like this and you figure, oh, my biggest problem, my biggest fear, my biggest whatever is going to be the um, Muslim extremists or it'll be hostile government or whatever. But you don't realize that sometimes it's the compilation of the small things that wear on you, where um, the frustration of learning a language and a culture. Um, and we don't realize as Americans how ethnocentric we are. <laughs> and it can, um, you, you have these moments that they're not your finest, that um, it's like, no, you know, like, why aren't you understanding me? Why? It's like, we feel like they should conform to our way when we have to conform to their way of thinking and communicating and, and just dealing with each other. And that can be really hard. And then there's just so many other things that, like, uh, where I live, um, we're constantly sick, constantly, whether mm-hmm. food or water or um, those things will wear on you and discourage you. Um, dealing with um, the mis- misunderstandings and communication, mm-hmm. um, sometimes 
cause you, like, that caused me to not be at my finest moment. Because um, you have a meltdown every now and then. You can. And that's just human. It's the human side. Right. Um, you can get uh, very discouraged and very frustrated. And sometimes the very people you love and you've left everything to go and to serve, there are moments where it's just like, ah, <laughs> Calgon, take me away, you know. Um, you have to work through those things, and they're so difficult um, for us. But I think you kind of go through cycles, you know, and that culture shock is probably that culture shock thing. Um, but God always has a way of turning things around, and um, he gives you grace, and he gives others grace mm-hmm. where you need it. And um yeah, because it's it's extremely difficult to be out in a whole new culture, a whole new language, a whole new way of thinking and approaching things. It's probably one of the hardest things there is. Wow. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. I, I think that was great. You know, it, it's it's hard sometimes to think about one experience, especially when there are, like you said, that myriad of individual experiences. With that, we are going to take a quick break. And um, when we come back, we're going to shift our focus a little bit more from you toward the ministry that you have going on. Take your leadership to the next level. It's time for the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions. Hi, it's Scott McClelland. Thanks for joining us. Today, I want to talk to you about change. Seems like change is all around us, and the pace of change is increasing. Things that might have been considered a constant in the past or things that we could depend on in the past uh, are changing all around us, and things that we thought might be that way forever. You know, that's, uh, that's not true, and we're observing and noticing that. Not only in our personal context is change all around us, but also in the worldwide context, and we see that. One thing about change is we need to be able to approach change with a positive uh, sense of mind. If we look at change from a sense of dread, even good changes can be sort of overshadowed by what is an anticipated negative. So I want to encourage you to approach change with optimism instead of dread. Another thing I want to mention about change is this. Not all change is progress. A lot of leaders and people who are in positions of authority advertise change. We're going to make this change, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be the best thing ever. (laughs) And sometimes it isn't. So change for its own sake doesn't necessarily produce progress or produce good things. The thought that comes to mind, not all change is progress, no matter who the salesman is. (laughs) And that's true, regardless of the salesman's occupation, if you get my meaning. In order for change to be progress, we need to approach it optimistically, and we need to be in a position to influence the changes that are around us. If we recognize changes that, in fact, are not progress, then we should not call them progress, but we should call them what they are. Truth, very important element in our approach to change and the changes around us. It's Scott McClelland with your Leadership Moment. Thanks for joining us. To contact me or us, please do so at fxmissions.com 
or on most social media outlets at FX Missions. Have a good one. This has been the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions. If you have a leadership question, please send it to feedback at engagingmissions.com and visit fxmissions.com to connect with Scott and discover how you could be involved in short-term missions. All right, we are back with Miriam Paul. We just finished learning a little bit about her, hearing about a challenge, hearing about the call that God put on her life and how he got her through that. Now we're going to shift our focus more toward the ministry that she has going on. And again, we are using a pen name. We're going to be a little bit careful with how we reference the country and things like that. But Miriam, as as we get into this, can we maybe can you share maybe some of the stories of how God's moving in the area where you are? The country that I live in has a lot of terrorism. Um, it's known for Al-Qaeda and a lot of the other activities that happen. Um, it's important, I think, for people to understand that the more um, atrocious activities they do, mm-hmm. the meaner they are, um, the more they attack and oppress the people, um, the more the common Muslim people are getting disillusioned. And it's something that's really interesting. I like to look at the news, like the internet news, and listen to people talk about things. Because when something happens, an attack or whatever, you have to remember that the the terrorists are also attacking mostly Muslim people in their own countries. Hmm. Um, they do attack Christians and minorities, but most of the time in this country, we are seeing Muslims die at the hand of Muslim terrorists, and they attack their own mosques, they attack, attack their own people. And so um, it kind of, what that does, when I hear the feedback and reading it on the internet or listening to people speak, some of the statements I've heard are, is this what it means to be Muslim? Is this what Islam offers? And I've heard more than once, I am ashamed to be a Muslim. So when that happens, um, it's actually opening a door um, because they're getting disillusioned with the religion that's imposed upon them. Um, When they're born into Islam, they do not have a choice or freedom to change that without some really fierce consequences. So they're starting to question that really, is this really what um, our religion offers? Um, And there's a lot of conflict amongst themselves. That kind of actually it's opening the door for the gospel because when the people of God live like followers of Jesus, that's the key right there. Um, Not all minorities, not all Christians in this country are born again and not all of them live as followers of Jesus. But when those who do live openly as a follower of Jesus and being Christ-like, that is very attractive and it draws them in and... um, Actually, when they can get a hold of the Word of God, they can get a hold of that New Testament, of the Gospels, and actually read it and come to know the nature of Jesus and what he's teaching and what he he did and what he stood for, that's actually, um, it draws them um, Hmm. because they're looking, so many of them are oppressed and they're tired, they're tired of um, oppressive, you know, just the... Oh, goodness. It's Everything's just turbulent all around them, and there's just no peace. When they find um, that peacefulness and that love and that hope that's in Christ, it's opening up doors, and a lot of them are starting to ask questions, or they're starting to ask, they want a Bible, they want to read the Bible, and some of them, a lot of them are coming to Christ, <laughs> and um, the great consequences with that. But it's actually pretty cool, and if you look at even what's happening in Syria and Iraq with ISIS, 
many of those refugees and many of those people who have been persecuted by ISIS, um, they're actually very open and very hungry for the gospel. Hmm. So it's opening doors. So you mentioned that people live openly as believers of Christ in or followers of Christ in a majority Muslim nation. Are you able to be open with your faith as well? Yes. If the the difference the, the key is that um, in a country like this you have um, ethnic Christians. Mm-hmm. So there's a small percentage of a people group who are like the ethnic Christians. Now not all of them are born again. Sure. Actually, I would say a half a percent of them are, but. Um, but you you kind of are what you are by birth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but if you are born into a Christian home and your birth certificate and your ID papers and everything, it's going to be stamped what your religion is. Mm-hmm. If you are stamped as a Christian, born to a Christian home, then you are free to worship in a Christian church. Um, and and then there's those together and they come together. They're still persecuted and sometimes they're still attacked in their worship times, but they are free to do so. I live my life as a, very openly, very vocally as a follower of Jesus. Uh, and I found that they really respect that. Really? Yeah. It's, you know, I think years ago there was this idea of friendship evangelism and kind of like hiding the fact that you're a Christian yeah. and make friends. And then after you build this relationship and build their trust, then after a year or two or whatever, then you start sharing Jesus. And that's actually quite deceptive. <laughs> and um, it doesn't really work. Um, I've had many Muslim people tell me, oh, you, because I am such a moral good person oh you would be such a good muslim and they've told some of my other friends it's too bad she's not muslim because she would be a very good muslim so you know you can't just live it you have to proclaim it and so i'm very open about my faith in jesus and if jesus means everything to me and i have a relationship and experience with jesus then that's going to just come out in my daily conversation with people and it should bubble out and it does and i found that my muslim friends um, really respect that and um that opens up doors um for they want to see the real deal yeah and you know a lot of Muslim people, they are deceived about what it means to be a Christian. They're deceived about what we really believe in our theology. Hmm. Um, they're told some pretty crazy things. So when they actually get to know us and see what, what we really do believe and how we live, a lot of these countries, they think that, oh, well, the Christians are the ones that drink alcohol, eat pork, and watch dirty movies. <laughs> so it's like, well, not necessarily. So when they see something different and, and have that personal relationship, it changes a lot of things. And so, um, uh, yeah, I'm very open and vocal about that. The key thing in these countries is that you are not allowed to evangelize a Muslim. Right. Because the Muslims are not allowed to convert to Christianity. And so it's a danger to that person that you're evangelizing. And it's also a danger to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could be Best case scenario, kicked out of the country, um, but you could be imprisoned or persecuted somehow, or you could be killed. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's usually fallout from all of the people around you as well. Wow. So now when you're over there living openly as a believer, do you try, do you make any effort to live according to the kosher dietary rules or anything like that so as not to offend them? How, How do you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Paul said, I become all things to all people. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to put any kind of stumbling blocks in front of them. Um, I don't drink alcohol anyway, so that's not an issue for me. Um, but for the Muslims, you know, alcohol is forbidden and pork is forbidden. Well, pork is illegal in this country. Oh, really? Anyway. Okay. Um, I think some foreign 
foreigners can get it through, you know, their embassies or clubs. But um, I, I just stopped eating, stop eating it, and I can, I don't eat it while I'm overseas. And it's as well. If they ask me, do you eat pork? No, I don't eat pork. So um, it actually helps. Um, you know, it's, it can be whatever. I mean, yet I've told people, I've told some friends that, well, you know, we don't have the same rules to follow that you do. We're not bound to those. Yeah, I still don't put that stumbling block before them. Mm-hmm. I dress conservatively um, enough, like in their culture, not to um, to look like a Muslim because I don't want anyone to think I've converted or that I'm trying to fool anyone. Right. But I do cover um, the necessary amount uh, <laughs> that I earn the respect of the people mm-hmm. and earn a right to speak into their lives. Wow. Okay. And and one other thing that as, as as I was hearing from different people, you know, a lot of times there's some difficulty understanding how you bridge the gap between Allah and Jehovah or Yahweh, God, the, the God that we worship. How are you able to address those differences with a cultural Muslim? Yeah, that's a tricky question because um, there's t- two ways to approach it. Uh-huh. Um, most people... Um, most Christians will say, well, Allah and Yahweh, they're nothing alike. They're not the same. You look at their nature, their character, they are not the same. Mm-hmm. And I would say, correct. Yeah. If you look at the nature of Allah according to the Quran and the Hadith, and you look at what Scripture says about Yahweh, um, they don't match up. However, um, I have friends in this country who are very devout Muslims. They love God. Um they see things in their perspective and they have told me that you and I, we both serve the one God, the one true God, and that we he's the God of, that created everything. He's the God of Abraham mm-hmm. and um, he's the judge of all things. And this is common ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of my Muslim friends look at me in the same way an evangelical Christian will look at an Orthodox Jew. Sure. That we have the same foundation, we have the same, even like the Torah, you know, we have this, but an evangelical Christian will look at a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, in love and just say, um, we have the same God, we have the same foundation. However, when the Messiah came, you didn't recognize him, you don't accept that, and you're missing out with the New Testament. Right. I have Muslim friends who look at me the same, that um, Jesus was great, he was the greatest prophet, and, and the, the Torah, the, the Psalms, the Gospels, they are holy books. But later, God sent another prophet, Muhammad, and you don't recognize him, and you, you're missing out because you're, you're not embracing the greatest prophet and you're not recognizing and embracing the greatest or the the latest revelation which is the quran and it's interesting how they look at me like that um some i've met some muslims there who look at me with disdain but most of them actually will approach in that way so for me i choose to build a bridge rather than a wall Mm -hmm. and say i approach them as okay you and i we serve the one god the creator of all things the god of abraham but let me show you who he really is because you don't understand his true nature and through the scriptures and through testimony and just sharing about things and talking about that we begin to discuss the nature of god um, yahweh um, versus allah and that opens up a lot of conversation and if you approach it this is how i've had, i've done it building that bridge um from the, the the common foundation then actually it's i've found it to be very helpful and productive 
That's great. What is it that excites you the most about what you're doing over there? I love seeing Muslim people hear the gospel for the first time. Like when they hear it and something clicks or like it may be the second or third time or whatever, but when, you know, faith comes by hearing yeah. and sometimes they need to hear it in different ways or see it and, and get it in different avenues. But when you see somebody who never had access, um, just start to get it or the the wonder and amazement in their eyes i've watched um muslim men who receive their very first new testament in their language and look at it and i've heard at least three of them say i have wanted to see one of these my whole life and i've never been able to find one and actually kiss it and hold it to their chest that's not something i expected but it was quite beautiful and maybe not all of them feel the same way but there are many that I have found that feel that way. And, um, you know, most Muslims don't speak Arabic. The Arab world is is the smaller part of the Muslim world. Um, so you, you look at Indonesia, um, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, all of the Muslims there, they far outnumber the Arab Muslims. Uh, and there are many other countries where there are Muslims. So for them to actually have a holy book in a language they understand it's it's beautiful and it, it excites some of them. So, and isn't that kind of a deal where the um, the Quran is only valid in the original language? Correct. And so, if they don't have an understanding of that language, then they're kind of out of luck. Correct. And depending on what, um, like what which teaching is, like, um, kind of like you know, Muslims mosques. Um, Islam, they vary just like Christianity, right? You have different churches, different denominations, and different mosques, and um, there are different jamiats and different teachings that have different aspects, even though they're all the same. They're all Muslim, but they may worship differently. So many Muslims who don't understand Arabic, they learn how to recite the Quran, um, and they may study in school or um, at the mosque, uh, madrasa, or at home. They may teach them how to read it just enough to pronounce it and recite it. But most Muslims do not speak enough Arabic to read a Quran as a book and understand what it's all saying. They know what they know is what their imam or maulana has taught them and told them. This is what it says. So it can go very much like the old in the church years ago when it was all in Latin. There's a lot of control there. Um, so if if it's not recited in Arabic, it doesn't count because that's how you know Allah gave it to them. They were they're told. So um, very few Muslims that I know of have actually sat down and read the Quran. In a, in a, they call it the interpretation of the, the Quran, a translation in their own language. Very few. And I actually try to encourage most of them to do so yeah. uh, when we talk about it, because it's important that they really know what it's saying. Wow, that's good. So as, as I'm thinking about this also, you know, it seems like sometimes there can be um, a perspective that people only go to win souls and that, you know, there's this whole notch on your gun belt thing. But uh, the experience that I have is that missionaries almost always have some other passion or something else that's fueling what they're doing. Could you share with us kind of what, what underpins what you do and how you do it? Well, you know, for me, um, I do, I am involved in a humanitarian work Mm -hmm. um, to see people who are oppressed, addicted and abused. And we reach out and we help them, whether they're from Christian or Muslim background. Um, And, but more than just, 
um, that humanitarian help, mm-hmm. humanitarian aid, um, that's not enough. We need to do that as Christians, as believers uh, in Jesus. We we need to reach out and love them and help them if they need food, if they need this shelter, whatever they need. It is our obligation as followers of Jesus to reach out and do that because Jesus did that. Mm-hmm. He, he had compassion, but he never did it without proclamation of the gospel because if all we're doing is helping people have water to drink or get... Um, off of drugs or teaching kids to read or whatever, if that's all we're doing, and at the end of the day or at the end of their lifetime, they're still going to go to hell, mm-hmm. then what's the point? So for me, the driving factor in all of it is eternity. I try to keep eternity in mind. Um, what does this person need? Um, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of the risk, the ultimate goal is eternity for this person, that they become uh, in right relationship with God so that when that day comes, they will be ready to meet him and stand before him. That's really how I see it. And so um, even though I'm involved in humanitarian work, my heart is um, to see people come to Christ, come to salvation, to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care about a conversion on paper Mm -hmm. or whatever. I want them to know Jesus as their Savior. And um, my heart with that is to help them, to see them, reaching their own people and sharing the gospel and hopefully maybe see a church planning movement among the indigenous groups. And do you primarily work with individuals, with groups, with families? How, how do you normally approach the work that you do? Yeah, well, for me, it's a little different sure. um, because the country I'm in is very restrictive and the government is constantly watching um, under surveillance all the time. Hmm. And I don't have the freedoms that a lot of other workers in other countries do to just kind of go about their business and go here and there and and that because whatever I do is watched. And I'm actually even told you can only go here and here, like to these places, but you can't go to that region. You can't go there. You can't go there. It makes it really difficult. Yeah. Um, so with that, um, and I'm not allowed to openly preach the gospel so it happens with your relationships you're the people that you come into contact with that you rub shoulders with every day whether they work with you or live around you a neighbor a friend somebody that you see regularly and building relationship with them living life with them celebrating with them suffering with them praying for them i have never ever met a muslim that refused prayer Never. Even though I pray in the name of Jesus, um, in this country, I've never met one that refused the offer to pray for them in the name of Jesus. Um, Because they're people of prayer. Muslims pray five times a day. Mm -hmm. Um, And through this, through living life with them and and, um, becoming a part of their community, becoming a part of their family, you have an open door to share the gospel. And when we pray with them, Jesus has... Um, he's healed people of some incredible things and he has met needs and he's touched them. And to see that, um, and even, you know, we hear stories of, of Muslims having dreams and visions of Jesus around the world. And this, this is true. And someone very close to me had this experience uh, where Jesus came in the middle wow. of the night into their room, woke them up and had a short conversation and um, changed their life totally changed their life, changed the path of their life. And 
that was kind of what they needed. They were already on that faith journey. It takes a while for Muslims, usually. Yeah. Um, it's a journey. But um, at that moment, and you know, actually a week before that, I had told this person, I'm going to pray that Jesus will somehow show himself to you to help you understand. Because I could see that this person was just hungry and getting so close and just trying, but there were just so many things that just didn't reconcile because um, Islam teaches, well, Jesus isn't God, God can't have a son, and the Trinity means that Christians have three gods, God the Father, God the Son, and Mary, and trying to clarify a lot of this. And, and, and you know, I just said, you know, I'm going to pray that Jesus will come and show himself. And this person said, thank you. And one week later, Jesus came and woke that person up in the night. And they described him, just like you hear all the other times, dressed in shiny white from head to toe. And his hair and his beard were solid white. Just like in Revelation, when John saw Jesus returning, Revelation chapter 1, his hair was white as wool. This is what I heard. And, and Jesus spoke in this person's tribal language, which is so cool. This is how Jesus is. And was just so loving and ministered to the heartfelt need that this person had at that moment and that was it they were like oh he's he's real jesus loves me and he's the savior he's the son of god and to see that is so amazing for me it's somebody so close to me but i've met other people that have had encounters as well it's so it's just exciting <laughs> that's great yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. With that, we are going to need to take one more quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to shift our focus one last time more toward our listeners. Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. Well, for me, there's always been some pretty clear evidences of it. For example, when I was leaving Borneo to return to the United States, I had already committed to taking a teaching position back in the States, but I wasn't convinced that I was doing the right thing. And I was meditating, Lord, am I running away from this bad situation or something I don't like in Indonesia, or am I really following what you want me to do? I'd been praying about that for two, three days, because I still had time to change my decision at that point. And we got a a radio message. We were back up in the jungle somewhere, and and our communication with the outside world was by shortwave radio. So my field director told me he had a message for me. I went over to the radio, and uh, ask him what was up, and his comment was, well, Wayne, we got some bad news for you. Your visa application for Indonesia has been rejected. You must be out of the country within uh, six months. And that pretty well clenched it. Yeah, I guess I was doing the right thing. <laughs> if you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. If you're enjoying the Engaging Missions show, would you consider partnering with us? You can do that by telling people about the show or by donating to help cover the cost of the show. Visit engagingmissions.com slash partner to learn more. All right, we are back with Miriam Paul. We just finished hearing some of the amazing things that God's been doing, specifically a story of Christ appearing to someone who needed that experience. Now we're going to shift our focus one last time. This is our time to focus on you as the listener, to draw from Miriam's experience, the insights that she has, some of the resources she may have available. So Miriam, the first question I have, because I know that most of the people who listen to the show are here in the U.S., they're 
they, they feel connected to missions, but they also feel called into the marketplace. And sometimes in that situation, you can start to wonder if what you're doing really matters. So what would you share with someone, share with someone in that situation? It absolutely matters. You know, when I came back to America after being gone for about three and a half years, yeah. it's a lot of ways I, I, I've said I barely recognize our country. It's changed so much. And it's really becoming a godless society in a lot of ways. And that is the reason why we need the people of God here that are in the church, not just to sit on the pews, but the people in the marketplace. God has placed you there for a reason, and you have something to offer. Just the fact that you are a follower of Jesus, you have the answer to all of what the people around you need. And, you know, I can be a worker that goes around the world, but somebody's got to be here. Somebody has to be the light around us. And those people who are in the marketplace, wherever God has placed you, or in your school, or in your workplace, or in your community, in your neighborhood, you are the light to those people. And you may be the only gospel they hear. And that is every bit as important as what I'm doing on the other side of the world. It's a, it's a whole body of Christ group effort. There is need all around us. There are lost people everywhere. And um, each of us has a part to play in that. If you're okay, I'd like to deviate a little bit from the questions because when you came over, you mentioned that you had some resources also around refugees and some of the stuff going on there. I definitely don't want to turn this into something political, but God loves the oppressed. So would you share with us, just just open mic, what do you want to share with us? Well, I just, I have observed, um, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of um, anxiety among the people dealing with refugees. Mm-hmm. Um there's a sense of, well, we don't want them here because, you know, some of them may be terrorists or some may be this or that. But you know what? We need to keep in mind that these refugees, they are people who are fleeing the terrorists. Yeah. They have um, been oppressed. They have been persecuted. And many of them have lost almost everything um, but their lives. And now they're willing to take the risk. They know that there's risk in being a refugee, but the hope is that what's at the end of this trip is going to be better than what we're leaving behind. And um, it's, I think that's just so important. And don't forget that, like I said earlier, so many of those who have been persecuted and that are fleeing, um, their hearts are open to the gospel. You know, when you look at the refugee crisis in Europe, mm-hmm. um, they there's so many, there's so much need. And I was speaking just a couple of weeks ago to a man who's a missionary in Vienna, and he they're doing help to reach out to the, the refugees, but there's so many that are living outside the refugee camp that can't get in. Mm-hmm. And there's just, there's just so much need. And I, I, he said that the churches were going and they were taking food and taking clothing and loving on them and ministering to them. And they're responding to that from so many different countries, whether it's Afghanistan, um, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, so many places. And they're responding to the gospel. They're responding to that love, that compassion, that's being shown to them. And then I asked this brother, I said, um, okay, 
we know that in, in Islam, the Ummah, which is like the, the worldwide body of Islam, all the Muslim brothers and sisters, is called the Ummah. The Ummah can be very strong at times, and they, they're supposed to stand together, take care of each other, and they defend each other. Um, what is, like, we look at Saudi Arabia, we look at United Arab Emirates and Qatar, these three countries are just, they have gold coming out of their ears. They have so much money. I said, what are they doing to help their Muslim brothers and sisters? And the answer was practically nothing, very little. I'm sure that there are some who are helping, but most of that help, um, the help that's coming, is not coming from the Muslim countries who have the capacity to do it. Even in Europe, where, where this particular man is working, the mosques are not opening their doors and taking them really? in. They may give um, do a little bit of food, like one meal or whatever, but who are the ones that are taking people into their homes or who are the ones that are, you know, sacrificing to give so much? It's the Christians and, and the and secular people too, I guess. But when the church is reaching out, it's opening doors. And this is an opportunity for God to bring these people to us. It is illegal for me to go to their country and right. share the gospel. It's illegal. But it needs to be done anyway. There's so much risk involved. But if they come here, if they come here to our country, we are free to share the gospel with them. They are free to hear the gospel, and they are free to choose to follow Jesus if they want. That's a no-brainer. It is a no-brainer. So rather than fearing these people and despising them, um, you know, and there was even one British leader that says, but, you know, how can we accommodate these people? Because our standard of living will, will go down. Hmm. But you know what? The Bible tells us um, that we are supposed to love those who are oppressed and we're supposed to love the stranger and to help them. And, you know, I think the most powerful scripture that I see in that is in Matthew 25, where Jesus was talking about at the judgment and separating the sheep from hmm. the goats. Yeah. And he said, um, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not want to clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. And then they said, well, Lord, when did we do these things? And he said, when you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And that's the way we need to look at these refugees. Look at them. And, and we need to pray, Lord, help me to see them as you see them and help me to love them as you love them. There's a wide open door there of opportunity for ministry if we would just take it. You know, when you were sharing, one thing that really stood out to me was the European church, because here we hear that the European church is dead, that the church is irrelevant. And what I hear from you is that the church is rising up to the occasion, that they're stepping up in mercy ministries and in things like that. They're actually living the gospel in those ways. Is that is that accurate? Well, I mean, in some ways it is. I mean, it's true that Europe has had the decline, sure. you know, in the faith and the church attendance and a lot of that. But God is still moving. He's moving among his people and he has his people everywhere. He's always had people and he will always have his people, his church. And um but those even though they may be few, um, they are step many of them are stepping up and they're opening their doors. And a lot of them come through international churches as well and in, in those large um European cities. Um, that they're reaching out because they're international churches and um, people from other places. But yeah, I mean, there's still so much more need. Right. But yes, they are stepping up and doing it. So 
you know, thinking about our, our typical listener, somebody who's here in the U.S., one of the things that's become a little bit more common experience is that you look up one day and you realize that your neighbors, your coworkers, the, the person you're in the grocery store with are not from here. They're from places where we think that we only send missionaries. What would you share with somebody who's realizing that? You know, it's really exciting if you think about it. Um, you have that opportunity to bridge the gap. You have that opportunity to build relationships. You know, the refugees or the immigrants that come from many of these countries, um, especially from what I hear, the Muslim immigrants that come, they are some of the loneliest people here because in their countries, it's very community-oriented. It's a communal culture, and our culture is individualistic. We kind of like to go into our house and close the door and, and do our thing, but they they have left their whole family. Their family units are very tight. They're very wide and big, but... Um, Sometimes it's it's you know annoying as I've heard some of these women share from the Middle East that everybody's in your business, everybody controls everything, everybody talks about what you do or don't do, but yet they come here and they're so lonely and they just want friends. And so that's where you know what when you see people in around you that are from other countries, that is an amazing opportunity for you to say hello. That's how it starts. Yeah. Say hello, reach out, talk to them. Um, build a friendship with them. Um, try to find a need and fill it. You know, if if they're struggling, if they're in poverty, then try to help help them with that. Or not even just giving, but like being. Somebody needs a ride to the doctor. Go with them because they don't understand the dynamics of the language and the culture and how things run and work. That is a huge opportunity for us to minister to them and include them at Christmas and Easter or whatever kind of celebrations you're having at home and at church, invite them. And you will be surprised how many will come because you cared, because you were there and you wanted to include them. Wow, that's great. You know, I just realized that we went over the time that we had scheduled, so I apologize for not keeping track of that better. Do you mind answering maybe one more question before we go? Is there a tool, a resource, a book maybe that you'd recommend for our listeners? Oh, goodness. Wow. There are... Quite a few books that I've been reading lately. Um, I think some of the most informative books that I have read recently, one of them was from Dr. Nabil Qureshi. Okay. And it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And that is a story of a Pakistani American young man grew up in a very devout religious Muslim home and set out to try to prove how Christianity was wrong and Islam is true. Hmm. And through his objective searching, Mm -hmm. um, he had an encounter with Christ. And coming from an Islamic uh, point of view, he explains and teaches so much and helps you understand the mindset of the Muslim people that live next door and um, help you understand what they believe, what they struggle with, how they perceive things. And he does it in such a loving way. And I think it's one of the most helpful things to help teach people to bridge the gap. Um, there's also one that I was reading recently called Into the Den of Infidels. Okay. Um, and there's another one, Killing Christians. They sound pretty harsh, and it shows the persecuted church, the persecuted believers around the world. Um, but you talk about inspiring. Um, wow. <laughs> Oh, that's great. And for those of you listening, I will have all of this linked up in the show notes, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash Miriam Paul. Now, Miriam, I just want to say one more time before we get off the air, thank you so much. This has been truly amazing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this, along with show notes, by visiting engagingmissions.com 
or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. Audio editing was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studio. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.